The following is a presentation of Genesis. Genesis is a place where you are invited to begin, belong, and believe. To find out more, visit us on the web at genesisthejourney.com. We are in the midst of our series called Jesus, and uh, we are faithfully, I was about to say slowly, but uh, faithfully walking through uh, the gospel of Mark. And uh, tonight, uh, we are in Mark chapter 10. If you want to open, if you have a Bible, open it to Mark chapter 10, if you would. Last week, we left off where Jesus was teaching uh, about marriage. And um, if you weren't here, I would encourage you, um, I don't ever do this, but I would encourage you to take time to go back and read what Jesus has to say about marriage and the importance of marriage, the value of marriage, and take a a listen to what was shared last week um, about this text. Um, Because one of the things that hit home for me personally this week uh, was another marriage that has crumbled right in front of me. And it was uh, uh, just the timing of things, so to speak, is we're talking about marriage last week and get a call this week of uh, another marriage uh, given way to adultery and given way to... uh, walking towards, uh, towards divorce. So I know a lot of us here in this community uh, are single, and uh, my heart for you is that if God does call you to marriage, that you would be thinking through what does it mean to be a godly husband, what does it mean to be a godly wife, that you don't show up the day that you take vows, and now you're wondering, gosh, what does it mean? I don't, I've never thought about being married before. Um, God has a plan, a purpose, a design for marriage, and when we follow God's plan, purpose, design for marriage, uh, there's permanence, and there is beauty, there is health, but when we pursue our own way, do our own thing, and um, really focus on the me as opposed to the we, um, there's devastation. So I would just encourage you to really wrestle and consider what uh, God has to say about marriage. Uh, We're going to do this uh, tonight as we did last week. Uh, we're just going to do this one more time. Um, if you have questions, uh, I'm going to give at the end of uh, our time an opportunity f- uh, for you to literally just ask questions about what we're going to be talking about tonight. And the way we're doing that, uh, to give you a sense of um, no one's going to know what you're asking, is you can text message your questions in. So as you text a question in, make sure you put Genesis and then your question, and then send your, your, um, your text off to uh, that five-digit number. 99503. Let me uh, pray for us, and then uh, we'll jump into tonight's story. God, you are good, and uh, I pray that each of us would experience your goodness in this place tonight. God, I have no idea where everyone in this room is as it relates to you, Uh, but God, I do pray that uh, by the end of our time uh, tonight in this place, uh, that our hearts would be drawn to your heart. God, that our eyes would be open to you, our hearts would be willing to receive uh, what you would have to say to each of us in this place tonight. God, I I do pray that we would be changed and different and transformed uh, because we met with you, the living God, in this place tonight. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. This is, uh, I'm going to go through this pretty quick, but this is Mark chapter 10, starting at uh, verse... Let's start at uh, verse 13. It says this, People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. 
People are wanting to bring their kids to Jesus so that Jesus can literally just bless the children. Now, the disciples, these guys have it going on here. They see this happening, and uh, the disciples are like, what are you thinking? Get your kids away from Jesus. Verse 14, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. If you don't know what indignant means, it means to be red in the face, meaning to be full of anger. So this is something that really ticked Jesus off. He was very upset at what he saw the disciples doing. And he said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and he blessed them. I think the disciples were, had maybe good motives of trying to protect Jesus from what uh, people of the culture thought children were just a complete nuisance, and uh, they were trying to maybe give Jesus some rest and didn't want little kids annoying Jesus. Point being, uh, Jesus uh, was not very pleased uh, with that, and I think just a big picture message with that is don't ever block anyone from ever coming to Jesus. There is no one who would ever be considered a nuisance uh, to Jesus. So don't ever get in the way or hinder someone or block someone from ever coming to Jesus. Kids, these families were coming and they wanted to have an audience with Jesus, but the disciples saw them and said, no, you're a nuisance to us and, and to Jesus. So they tried to prevent that from happening. Jesus is... Um, how many people have ever babysat before? Raise your hand. This is kind of, okay, really? Like two of you have babysat. That's impressive. Um, how many people have ever babysat and come across kids who were just utterly selfish, whiny, complaining, all, you know, uh, not the happiest little kid in the world? And um, I'm going to, most of us probably have seen kids at their not-such-good moments where we're like, wow, where's their parent, and why aren't they? Typically, uh, we understand this passage, or you're supposed to come to the kingdom just like a little child. And, um, and it's kind of confusing because sometimes the message is, yeah, like a little child, as cute and cuddly and adorable and very trusting, and, but the reality is there are some children who are cute and cuddly and uh, very adorable and very trusting and dependent, but Jesus is not saying, well, be like those children, but don't be like those selfish, self-centered, temperamental children over here. What Jesus is saying about receiving the kingdom like a child is be okay with being little. Be okay with being of little importance. Back in the ancient culture, much like ours, children were considered really not to be very important, very low status. And Jesus is saying, be okay with being a person who is not of high regard, high status. Be okay with littleness. That's what Jesus is trying to say. I'm going to go uh, on to... Uh, the part of uh, this, the story we're looking at tonight 
And this is, to me, it's an incredibly powerful story, but it's also a very tragic story because of how the story ends. And this is a story of, um, uh, we are guessing, probably a, a younger man, probably in his 20s and 30s, who comes up to Jesus and has some questions for Jesus, and Jesus gives him some answers. And this guy doesn't like the answers that Jesus gives, and so he takes off. And what might hit home for you, uh, for me, is we come to Jesus, we come to God with uh, questions. We don't like the answers that the Bible gives. We don't like the answers that Scripture gives or God gives to us. And so we bolt. And there's many of us who are walking away from the very person that we need to be walking towards. This is a story tonight of a man who had great wealth and was pretty impressed with himself and his good deeds. And he meets Jesus, and this is the question that he asks. As Jesus started on his way, verse 17, a man came running up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? His question really is very reflective, actually, what he thinks about God. How, what do I do in order to get this? Basically, give me a checklist of the things, the duties I need to perform to earn eternal life or inherit heaven, inherit eternal life. Now, his mentality was more of, I do, therefore I get, or I work, therefore I earn. That works well in the work environment. You work, you do, you get, or you earn something. But in God's kingdom, that just doesn't fly. That mentality of I do something, therefore I get something, or I perform, therefore I earn something from God, it just does not work. Now, he doesn't ask Jesus, how do I receive heaven, or how do I enter into the kingdom of heaven, but it was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You wrestle with this question. Do you think there's anything you could ever do to inherit eternal life? Do you think there's anything, a certain way that you could live, certain things that you could do where you could actually earn, merit, or inherit eternal life? I'm guessing maybe some of us are going to say, yeah, absolutely. Heck, be a good person and good people get into heaven, right? Maybe some of us would be a quicker to say, no, there's nothing I could ever do to inherit, merit, uh, or inherit eternal life. If you're that person who said no, I want you just to ask another deeper question. Is your no actually reflective in how, reflective in the way you live? Meaning, it's easy to say no, I can't earn, merit, inherit eternal life, but the way I live my life actually it certainly looks like I'm trying. For a better part of my life, I spent uh, thinking that I could, if I performed, I was morally good, did the church thing, read my Bible, I prayed some, was just kind, a good guy, that God would look at me and smile and be like, oh, that Michael Davis, what an impressive character he is. I cannot wait till he is in heaven with me. Now, I never verbally said that, but I lived that. I lived in such a way of when I'm reading my Bible, it wasn't because I enjoyed being with God. It was that I thought I would earn something or get something in return. 
So I would have said, no, I can't earn, merit, inherit eternal life, but my life actually certainly looked like, just call it performance-driven faith. So it's an important question, especially for tonight. Is there anything you could ever do to inherit eternal life? This man's understanding of God was very off, showed up in his question, but Jesus was about to set him straight. He says in verse 18, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. So Jesus is going to say, before we talk about heaven, before we talk about the kingdom of God, there's something you really need to know. There is no one who is good except God alone. I don't know if this resonated with this guy yet, but at some point he had to think to himself, wait a minute, that must include me. If there's no one who is good except God alone, then that must mean somehow I'm not good. Another question, is there, and you don't have to raise your hands on this, is there anyone in here who's good? Is there anyone in here who's a good person? Now, at least I'm guessing there's a, some of us, if not many of us, who are tempted to be like, yeah, I'm a pretty decent person. I'm a pretty good person. Our problem with that, though, is I'm always comparing myself to someone else, like an axe murderer, uh, a rapist, child molester, I always compare myself like to the worst of society, so to speak. Like, well, compared to that, yes, I'm pretty good. This is one of the hardest things to actually realize. There is not any of us who are good. The Bible makes very clear, and this is where it gets very difficult, because some of you are like, that's just not true, because that's just not me. Every single one of us is sinful, rebellious, evil. There is no one who is good. If you think you are, you're looking down, not looking up. Because if anyone would ever just look up and see God and see Jesus and say, wow, compared to Jesus, I'm completely ruined. I'm completely selfish, self-centered, completely sinful. Before he's talking about heaven, he's trying to correct this man's understanding of, you are not a good person. And he's trying to beat something out of him that good people inherit eternal life. There's no one who is good except God alone. Jesus begins to answer his question. He says in Mark 10, verse 19, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Now, this is the only place in Scripture where Jesus answers the question incorrectly. This guy comes and says, well, what do I have to do to get heaven? And Jesus points him to the Ten Commandments. It's like, what? Really? Jesus, what are you doing? It's not the right answer. That is absolutely not the right answer. Jesus, why are you pointing this man to the Ten Commandments? And what Jesus is doing is he's setting this man up. He's helping him to realize something about himself. And it's interesting, at least noteworthy, if you're familiar with the Ten Commandments uh, found in Exodus 20, 
Jesus jumps to the last six. First four Ten Commandments are about God. The last six commandments are about humanity, about our relationship with humanity. He doesn't talk about like having no other gods before me, worshiping other gods, that kind of thing. He jumps to the last six commandments, which deal with our relationship with one another. What he's doing here is he's leading this man to discover that, in fact, he is not even worshiping God. He's just actually worshiping a different God. I don't know if you also noticed this, but he says, Jesus replaces, if you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, says, you shall not covet. And Jesus, again, switches the commandment around and says, you should not defraud your neighbor. The difference. Why does he throw in, you should not defraud, versus you should not covet? This guy was, had great wealth, was a rich guy. And what he's trying to get this guy to think about is, is there any way that I've acquired my wealth by economic exploitation, where I've taken advantage of someone else? I've climbed over other people, taken advantage and taken their money. Now, I can only imagine this guy thinking to himself, wow, I cannot wait to answer this question because I've got it all. I've done it all. Like he's starting to, I can picture him, he's perking up of like, if that's it, I've got it. Jesus, point me to the prize. He says in verse 20, teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. It takes a pretty confident, dare I say, arrogant person to stand before Jesus and say, yep, I've done them all. Everything you've just said, I've got all of those covered. Not miss the mark on any of them. I can, I mean, who in here would actually look at Jesus and say, yep, done them all. Give me another list. I've probably done all those too, perfectly. I mean, most of us would probably have some sense of humility to say, well, I haven't been perfect, but I've been pretty good. This guy declares, all these I have kept since I was a boy. He doesn't even go back to like, you know, well, at least the past two weeks have been pretty good. He goes back to his childhood and be like, man, you should have seen me. I was like Superboy. I was a great little kid. Either he's truly perfect or he's incredibly misguided by his perceived good works. And that's what good works really has a way of doing. It has a way of blinding us to our own depravity. You do enough good works, you start to feel pretty good about yourself and become very impressed with yourself. Look at what I'm doing. Look at me. Look at what I've accomplished. I'm so good. I'm so kind. I'm so caring. I'm so rich. He became impressed with himself. It's a good chance that no one had ever told this guy what he was about to hear from Jesus. Because most people in that day, in that culture, including if this guy was standing before us, this guy was, he was rich. He was wealthy, well-to-do. I'm assuming most people, if not everyone, was used to, he's used to hearing these words, man, you are so awesome. You're so good. You're so perfect. And then he meets Jesus. Mark 10, verse 21. Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. 
the only place in the entire Gospel of Mark where Jesus points out one person and says, Mark highlights this. Jesus looked at him and loved him. If that was you, how would you have looked at him? Is there anyone in here who would have been like, dude, I'm going to smack this guy. How annoying is his arrogance to stand before Jesus thinking that he is all that? How many of us would have looked at this man and just said, I love you. Have compassion, have mercy, have grace. I probably would have been ahead of the line saying, dude, line up. I'm ready to take you down. But Jesus looks at him and loved him. And then I guarantee this is probably the first time he ever heard these words. One thing you lack. What? Lack? I got everything. What are you talking about? I don't lack anything. Jesus says to him, go sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Jesus looked at him with eyes of love and compassion, and he loved this man enough to confront him on what he was missing, what he was lacking. I love that Jesus' love drove him to tell this man what he needed, not what he wanted to hear. Love doesn't turn a blind eye. Love is able to look at someone and tell them, in love, you lack this. You're missing this. Remember the question. This guy wanted to know how to inherit or earn heaven. Jesus points him first to the commandments to show him that, you know, being good person would still leave him lacking actually one thing. Jesus tells him he's lacking something or missing something. What is he lacking? Like, how would you answer that question? What is this guy actually lacking? What is he missing? He's missing God. He actually has a relationship with a God. It's just the wrong one. He actually has a relationship with a God, and it's just called wealth. His riches. The one thing he is lacking, the one thing he is missing, is a relationship with God. What would Jesus say to you? I've been wrestling. What would he say to me? What's my one thing? What's the one thing that you're lacking? Jesus looks at you with eyes of love and compassion and grace and mercy and says, you lack one thing. What's your one thing? For this guy, his wealth was his God. What is your one thing? that is preventing you from relationship with God from heaven, from eternity. That's what this guy came asking Jesus about. One thing, you're missing. You take care of that, eternal life awaits. What is the one thing that Jesus would say is your one thing? Jesus told this guy to get rid of his God, because it was preventing him from receiving eternal life. 
Jesus gives them a five-fold imperative, five words, actually six. Go, sell, give, come, and follow. Five words. He looks at him and says, you lack one thing. If you do this, go, sell, give, come, and follow. Now it's decision time. What is he going to do? He just heard from Jesus, I lack this one thing. If I go and I sell and I give and I come and I follow, give it all away, I gain Jesus. I gain heaven. I gain kingdom of God. Or I keep what I have and I gain nothing. What would you have done? If Jesus is looking at you, go sell everything you have, take those proceeds, give it away, come back to me being Jesus, and then follow me. What would you have done? Now, I've heard this passage preached many times, many different ways. Because one of the things you have to ask, is this just for this guy? Like, is this just for, is this just for him, or does this count for me? Am I supposed to go and do this? And most people, just because they want to keep people comfortable, say, no, 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 no. This is just for this guy. God's not telling you to go. He's not telling you to sell. He's not telling you to give. He's not telling you to come. And he's not telling you to follow. The wrong. He is. What Jesus is telling him, this is not so much per se about wealth as it is about your God. Go and get rid of your God that is preventing you from coming to the one true God. Kill it. Destroy it. Come back and follow. His God was wealth. I realize that maybe your God's not wealth. Could just be the desire for wealth or status, or power, or influence, or possessions, career, relationships. So yes, Jesus is telling you, go and get rid of whatever God is preventing you from being in relationship with the one true, real God. So before you think, this is not for me, God's not telling me to get rid of everything and sell it and give away, come back and follow, he is. Just name what your one thing is. Go, kill it, get rid of it, come back and follow. This is what Jesus is utterly telling this man. Whatever it is that prevents you from walking with God, get rid of it. What's your one thing that's preventing you from walking with God? That's your idol. That's your false God. As I said, this is decision time for this guy, and why this is tragic is because of what he does. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. This guy is the only one in Mark's gospel that walked away from an invitation to follow Jesus. Creator of the universe, God in flesh, standing before him and says no. And he walks away from God. Now, I imagine somewhere between go and give, he probably tuned Jesus out and he missed what Jesus said. Go and and give and sell, come and follow. And what was the promise? You'll have what? Treasure 
in heaven. You would think to a rich guy, he would have heard treasure. I'm like, wait, I'm sorry, did you say treasure? But I have a feeling somewhere between go and give, this guy stopped listening to Jesus because he missed the promise where Jesus says, you will have treasure in heaven. He came seeking heaven, and Jesus said, not only can you have heaven, but treasure in heaven. And the reality is, if your treasure's here, no amount of treasure in heaven will really make that much of a difference because you're so impressed and consumed with what's in around you that you miss what is out in front of you. All the treasure in heaven probably would not make a difference to this guy because he was so consumed with the treasure that was literally he was living in. Consumed with what he'd be giving up that he could not see what he would be gaining. Consumed with what he'd be giving up that he could not see what he would actually be gaining. What do you think this guy was really fearful of losing? What do you think he was so frightened that, gosh, if I give this up, what was he so afraid of? What about you? What is it that you're so afraid, if I just give this up, if I, this one thing, if I give it, kill it, destroy it, that you're clinging on to it for dear life, what are you so fearful of if you lose that one thing, the thing that's preventing you from actually having a relationship with God? What are you so fearful of? The hardest part of this entire story for me personally is what Jesus does. He does nothing. <laughs> he lets this guy go. You would think that Jesus would chase him down and be like, okay, seriously, I was just kidding. I only meant 50%. Did you hear 100%? Okay, you're not there. You can't give it all away. Let's just, I'll meet you where you're at, my friend, because I love you. Let's start with just 50%. Oh, I'm sorry, 50% is too much? Let's, you're right. Let's go down to 25%. Jesus does not compromise on the call. He told this man, go, sell, give, come, and follow. This guy walks, and Jesus lets him walk. This is one of the hardest realities is that Jesus will let you walk away. And some of us are literally walking in the wrong direction right now, and you need to come back. This guy walked away from Jesus. For what? To hold on to his great wealth? If there's anyone here tonight who's walking away, just turn around. Come back to the one who has invited you to a relationship with him. Mark, I think, adds a very important detail about this story when he says this guy had great wealth. The last part of the verse, he had great wealth. Where do you think this guy got his money? Where do you think you get your money? 
do you think somehow this guy just, he, he just worked really hard, he earned it, and that was his money? The Bible makes very clear, Old Testament, New Testament, everything you have, everything you own, it's God's. And what typically happens is we take what God has given us and we turn it into a false God. We turn it into an idol. First Chronicles says this, wealth, honor, come from you. You are the ruler of all things. Proverbs 22, verse 2, rich, poor, have this in common. The Lord is maker of them all. This guy had taken what God had given him, and he chose to worship that as opposed to actually worshiping the one who gave it to him. We do the very same thing. We take what God has blessed us with, whether it's talents, whatever it is that God has blessed you with, and we turn it into that's the very thing that we worship. That's the idol, so to speak, that we give ourselves to. Now, this is taking place in front of a huge crowd, and the crowd is hearing this. And in verse 23, I can only imagine the crowds were like, I cannot believe that guy just walked away, and I can't believe Jesus is letting him walk away. And Jesus looks to the crowds, and he says this, he looked around and he said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Notice he said enter the kingdom of God, not inherit the kingdom of God, but enter the kingdom of God. Why is it so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? And by the way, the assumption back in the day, and probably in our culture, is if you have wealth, God, you're blessed. You're blessed of God. And so people would be thinking, man, if this guy can't get into heaven, one who is obviously blessed by God, then what hope does a poor person like me who has got no status influence standing in society culture, what hope do I have? And Jesus says, how hard it is for the rich to enter into the kingdom of God. So why is it so hard for the rich to enter? Self-sufficient, self-reliant, self-centered. Those are a few reasons, meaning they don't need anyone because they have everything. Second one might be they're so heavily medicated on the stuff, the possessions that they have, that they're literally blind to what they're missing. Or another one might be they have a conception of, "I, I can earn it. I've earned everything else in my life, so why wouldn't I earn this? I think a fourth one would be is they are convinced that money will do for them only what God can do. Why is it so hard for the rich to enter heaven? Is they look at their money and say, money will do for me what other people say God will do for you. This is called a false promise meaning it promises us something that it cannot provide. Money provides you security, doesn't it? Well, what if you're going to die from cancer 30 days from now? You still pretty secure? You got a lot of money, but you're going to be dead in 30 days. You still feel secure? Money brings happiness, right? What do you do when your spouse comes home and says, hey, I'm cheating on you. I've been having an affair. You still happy? Well, at least I've got money. It's a false promise. 
and we give ourselves to these false promises. Why is it so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven? And by the way, please note that wealth is not the only thing that prevents, it's hard for people to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a big one because so many people worship wealth, but it's not the only one. Is it hard for you to hear that it's hard for the rich to enter heaven? I mean, does that hit home for you at all? And I know most of you would say, well, I'm not rich, so I got nothing to worry about. Just so you know, all of you sitting here tonight are filthy rich, myself included. You just like to compare yourself up on this one. Well, I don't make as much as that guy over there. We so conveniently compare ourselves. When we want to feel good about ourselves, we just look down. When we want to feel good about ourselves when it comes to finances, we just look up and like, oh, I'm, I'm compared to that guy. I'm utterly poor. This was hard for the disciples to hear. It says, the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is just trying to make a point. Those of you who think you can earn your way to heaven, you're mistaken. There is nothing you could ever do to earn your way or deserve your way to heaven. The rich people, if they think they can earn their way, deserve their way, merit their way, inherit their way, are wrong. If there's anyone here tonight who's thinking you can somehow earn your way, follow the first, the back six commandments, be a good person, you're wrong. There's nothing that you can do to inherit or earn or merit eternal life. The disciples are now thinking, oh my gosh. And they ask this incredibly important question. He's setting them up to ask the most important question. Verse 26, the disciples were even more amazed and they said to each other, who then can be saved? This is the question that if you have not asked, you need to ask. How then, or who then, can be saved? If the rich can't be saved, can't earn our way, deserve our way, all that kind of who then can be saved? This is, by the way, a very different question than what the rich man asked. How do I inherit? Disciples go back and then be like, well, then who can? Who ultimately can be saved? Have you ever asked that question, by the way? It takes a pretty humble person to come to that place where you ask that question. Who can be saved? Because it's a person who's come to a place where it's saying, I'm not sure if there's anything I can do. So if I can't do anything, then who can be saved? Jesus answers this question. He says, Mark 10, verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Why is salvation so hard for man? 
Why is it impossible for you? Why is it impossible for me? And just to make it very simple, three simple letters, but devastating letters. Sin. That's why it's impossible. That's it. One word. Why is it so impossible for us? It's because we're all sinful. We're not good. The misconception, good people get something, earn something, deserve something. That's why it's impossible for us is because we're absolutely sinful, bent on doing our thing, our way. And Jesus says, with man, it is absolutely impossible. But then he gives a great promise, and he just says, but with God, all things are possible with God. The beauty of what Jesus says here is we're all in the same place. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. It's just a question of do you believe that? Because Jesus is saying wealth is not going to save you. Good deeds are not going to save you. A good life, good works, being a good person is not going to save you. This is really just a question of then what is going to save you? Because if it's not going to be you, then who will it be? And this is the beauty of the gospel, is that God does for you, for me, what we cannot do for ourselves. When Jesus enters into humanity to pay the penalty, he lives a perfect life to pay a penalty for sinners, us. This is such an important question. How can we be saved? It's not possible for you, but God says, I'll take it. What you can't do, I will do for you. Tonight, as I would close and uh, open it up just for a few minutes of questions, if questions have come in, who's your Savior? Who are you counting on to save you? This guy was counting on his wealth, his good deeds, his good works being a good person. Who's your Savior? At the end of the day, you stand before a holy God, a good God. Who is your Savior? I want you just to sit with that question. Who is your Savior? Who are you counting on to be your Savior? Peter's kind of a funny guy. And he is listening to all of this, and Peter asks this question, verse 28. Well, Peter said, we've left everything to follow you. He's hoping, like, Jesus, we're doing it right, right? Like, we're, we're not missing the boat on this one, right? Jesus, utterly kind of what's behind his statement here is, Jesus, if, if we go all in, are we, are we covered by you? Like, will it work? Jesus. We did give everything to follow you. We're going with you. Like, are we covered? And Jesus says this. This is a great promise. I tell you the truth. Jesus replied, no one who has left home, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and the fields, and with them persecution 
and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. All of this is a promise that Jesus says, anyone who's given up actually for Jesus and the gospel, a hundredfold will be gained back. And by the way, Jesus makes clear, it's if it's given up for Jesus and the gospel, because there are those who will sacrifice in the name of, I'm trying to earn it, I'm trying to deserve it, and Jesus makes incredibly clear for me and the gospel, not for you, not so you can flex your spiritual muscles and say, look what I've done. If it's done for Jesus and for the gospel, the promise is a hundredfold will be your return. This is a hard story. This guy walked away. He was, had a choice, had a decision, and he walked away from Jesus, and Jesus let him go. He came asking about heaven. Jesus told him about a relationship with God that you don't have. You have a relationship with God. It's just the wrong God. And rather than repenting from his false God and turning to the true God, he went his own way. And Jesus let him go his own way. Tonight, I'll finish by, uh, any questions come in? See what some of the questions are. No responses have been received. That's a great question. What are the questions I can ask to figure out who my God is and who I am depending on to save me? Just follow the trail of what you give your time to. Follow the trail of what you give yourself to, your resources to, your energy to. At the end of that trail will be a throne, and whatever's sitting on that throne is your God. That's the best way I can tell you. The question is just follow where you give yourself to, where you give your time to, where you give your resources to, where you give your energy to. At the end of that trail is a throne, and on that throne is a God. For this man, at the end of that trail, was his wealth. That's what he gave himself to. Who am I depending on to save me? Next question is, uh, in your opinion, does the tithe or tenth principle of giving still apply in our new grace-covered covenant? It's a great question, but I'll flip it around. Start with 100% of what you have belongs to God. In the Old Testament, there was a tenth principle that we would give back to God a tenth of what we had. But it was also a tenth, meaning they had an understanding that 100% of what they had was from God. And what God required was that of the 100% that they had been given, meaning everything, they would give a tenth back to God. We've reversed it and say we give a tenth to God, check it off, and 90% is mine to do with however I want to do. 
the New Testament, you can look in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. It just says, out of the joy will overflow generosity. That you give to God out of the overflow of the joy that's within you from what God has just given to you. So I would not get stuck on 10%, 8%, 20%. Get stuck on 100% belongs to God. And start with a question, God, everything is yours. What do you want me to do with it? How can I honor you? How can I worship you with everything that I have? Next question. What if I've tried to give up and or give away and have cried out to God to help but find it impossible, I know he can. What if I've tried to give up and or give away and have cried out to God? I don't, uh, that it's a, I think what's behind that uh, question is uh, maybe someone who is struggling with, I'm trying to do the right thing, but I continue to fall back into old ways, patterns, old habits. So what do you do if you're that person? I can give you just the very simplest answer. And please don't hear this as a canned answer. Continue to be a person who is absolutely and utterly humble. When God brings that to your attention, confess it and repent of it. And if it comes up 10 times a day, continue to confess, continue to repent of it. And the beauty of a relationship with God is he says that he will give us a new heart. So continue to ask God, give me a a new heart, renew my heart, renew my desires, and just be obedient. Every time God calls you to do something, to go somewhere, to give something, continue to be obedient. Let's do uh, one or two more. If we have extra money, should we pay off debt or save for retirement? It's a very good uh, practical question, and um, I would certainly encourage you, uh, if you have debt, uh, start with asking yourself, why? I know there will be people who will say, well, there's good debt and there's bad debt. Uh, I'll just say debt. Why do you have debt? So before you try to figure out uh, what you should do with extra money, if you should pay off the debt, which obviously I would always say, get yourself out of debt. But the problem is you can get yourself out of debt only to continue to get yourself back into debt because nothing has ever changed. Realize that uh, the Bible talks about stewardship, being a good steward of the resources that God has given you, has blessed you with. 100% belongs to him. So have the, the mentality, the heart that says, if I'm a steward, if I'm a manager, there's someone who's an owner, and I'm going to have to give an account one day for how I have stewarded his resources. And I know the, the second part of the question is, should I save up towards retirement? You might disagree with this, and, um, and that's okay. You'll be wrong. It's all right. Um, is my heart is certainly uh, to save 
but not to save so I can amass a lot more for me. I do want to be a good steward of God's resources and save to the best of my ability, but I do have heart that says I want to save so I can give more away. Is that why you want to save money? At the behind that might be, I need to save so I do have that security blanket, so to speak. Just in case God doesn't provide, at least I've got that little nest egg hidden away. I want to save so that I can give more away. One more question. Any more? All right. Father God, thank you uh, for the opportunity uh, tonight to take a look at a very tough passage. God, I pray that if there's anyone here tonight in this place, in this room, who's literally walking away from you in favor of a false god, that tonight they would turn, turn back towards you, that they would be and see that they are greatly loved. God, if there's anyone here tonight who is trusting in a salvation based on works, on good deeds, on being a good person, God, I pray that they would know that no one is good except you, God, and that they would repent of trying to earn it, trying to inherit it, and confess that there is absolutely nothing anyone can do to earn salvation but to trust you, Jesus. God, as we would turn towards you and worship, I pray that we would respond to what you have been speaking to each of us in this place tonight. God, I pray, please move in our hearts the question of who is my Savior. God, that if there is someone here tonight, whether it's one or many, who are trusting in someone or something other than Jesus to be their Savior, that they would turn to Jesus tonight and trust him for the salvation of their soul. Pray that in Jesus' name. Genesis is a ministry of Hope Christian Church. We invite you to find out more by visiting our website at genesisthejourney.com.